All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eli Kavan podcast. I'm here with uh, my friend Nicholas Braganolo. He's a uh, PhD student at York University. We also did his um, master's and uh, undergrad. Uh, and we're here to talk about some of his research, which kind of, Nick, does it center more around, like, you'd say, I guess, biochemistry? Or, like, I, I didn't think you were pure kind of a biology guy, right? Uh, yes, I, I study more biochemistry, structural biochemistry, technically. Uh, but the, uh, I guess you could say the function of the research will be more biology oriented. While what I do is a mix of biology, chemistry, and a little bit of physics as well. Okay. So right. jack of all trades type thing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, get ready to it then and um, just briefly overview kind of what you're doing now and anything that you've done in the past that you can talk about. Yeah, sure. Um, so throughout my undergrad, I was with a different supervisor, but now I'm with uh, the Odette Lab. And in this lab, we study the structure of proteins with a variety of techniques, uh, the main one being X-ray crystallography, which I'll describe a little later. Uh, but specifically, the, the goal of the group is to uh, focus, it focuses on solving the structures of proteins in the model bacterial conjugative system uh, called the F-PILIS. And I know I just threw out a lot of jargon <laughs> there, so I'll break, I'll break each part down. So bacterial conjugation is one of three horizontal gene transfer methods uh, and other so there's like the vertical gene transfer which is just common dna uh bacterial reproduction where uh dna gets passed from parent cell to daughter cell when the cells replicate the horizontal gene transfer accelerates the rate of uh dna passing between cells by uh allowing for to occur between two living cells. So uh, the other methods are transformation, where DNA is picked up from the uh, extracellularly, so just DNA sitting around in their natural environment, and then trans, uh, transduction, which is by viruses, so uh, mm -hmm. bacteriophages, which you may hear about very commonly now because they're used as a, a treatment option for a lot of bacterial infections. Mm -hmm. uh, it was another is another method, but conjugations. Uh, the third method, and apparently it's considered to be the most common method by which antibiotic resistance is transferred. So uh, what occurs in this is that the, uh, the bacteria host within them these uh, self-replicating uh, DNA pieces of DNA that are independent of the bacterial chromosome. So uh, they replicate on their own, and they also produce their own machinery for transferring to other bacteria. So uh, coded on them is a DNA sequence that gets um, tra transcribed to RNA, translated to protein to produce this harpoon-like appendage called the pilus. And this pilus extends outwards and contacts a neighboring bacterial cell, draws that neighboring bacterial cell in close, and their membranes actually fuse and allow for the, a copy of that DNA the plasmid specifically to be uh, brought over to the neighboring cell, and in that way, then that bacteria has that plasmid and can uh, perform the same thing with cells in its environment. And that's a way that uh, genes that can piggyback on these plasmids that are advantageous to these bacteria can uh, be very quickly uh, dispersed through a, a colony. So. Uh, 
if, for example, you're given a, an antibiotic treatment for an infection and one of these cells all of a sudden um, has, picks up one of these plasmids from their environment and it can pass it along in, throughout the colony and then you have an antibiotic resistant infection very quickly. So we're trying to develop uh, ways in order to solve the structures of proteins within these pili, uh, the, that the, uh, specifically the F pilus, which is the model one for gram-negative bacteria. And it was actually the first conjugative system discovered way back in the 1940s. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's got a very long history, but uh, for some reason, after uh, there was a big boom of antibiotics discovered in the, the 1960s and 70s, and then uh, they people just sort of uh, said, yeah, it's not really an issue right now. We'll, we'll put it back, just like with global warming. They keep pushing <laughs> it back, and now antibiotic resistance is creeping up on us. And like, we got to find ways to to target these types of systems in the so human we're looking body. At them. Is it like yeah. I guess you have to um, generate like different kind of antibodies to fight different types of infections and diseases? So like, uh, different types of antibiotics. Yes. Uh, so uh, certain species are more more commonly found to have resistance okay. genes for certain antibiotics than others. Mm -hmm. uh, so pretty much all. Uh, bacterial species have a penicillin resistant uh, subspecies now. Hmm. So penicillins vary because it, well, it's naturally found in it's found in fungi. So uh, there's already antibiotic resistance in nature. Uh, but even now, synthetic ones that uh, weren't even created by in nat by natural means, uh, bacteria have evolved to, uh, to combat these to either break the molecule itself or create drug efflux pumps that can pump them out of their cells before the drug can do any damage to them. Hmm. So uh, the drug discovery process is huge and long, and then the bacteria just evolve a new system to completely uh, like destroy all the progress that, they, that research has made. So um, one of the ways that they pass these genes around is through this pillar. So hopefully... By targeting it, we slow the growth, slow the process of antibiotic resistance. Hmm. So it's an antibiotic against antibiotic resistance if it were, all works out well. So tell me a little bit, Nick, about um, kind of your day-to-day -day in the lab. Like, what are the kind of experiments that you do, and how do you kind of test to see how your research is, is doing? Yeah, um, so first of all, we we have to transgenically express the proteins that we're studying that are from these pili. So luckily, because they're from gram-negative bacteria, we can easily grow them in a lab strain E. coli. Uh, they Most of them are um, very easy to express, but because uh, this pilus is actually a membrane-bound uh, structure and a very large complex, a lot of these proteins are very they're uh, hydrophobic. They're very difficult to express. Uh, the ones I'm studying are, they're a little bit easier just because they're in what's called the periplasm. So gram-negative bacteria have two cell walls and in the middle is a periplasm made up of peptidoglycan. And so that, it's a little bit more soluble uh, because, well, while the protein's ex existing in a complex, it's not like it's in the hydrophobic portion of the membrane. So uh, it's easier to express. 
So what we do is we produce clones, novel constructs of the proteins uh, within the bacteria. So we have to do some restriction enzyme cloning, lick cloning if we want to, and then send that DNA in for sequencing so that we make sure that our uh, protein is expressed properly. And then we transform these cells, uh, do some purifications by HPLC, which are uh, chromatography techniques, which yeah, we usually have to master pretty fast. Uh, so we always, we do that on a very daily basis because for protein crystallography, which is what we usually do next, we use that highly purified uh, and it has to be very concentrated protein in order for uh, crystallography to work. Uh, and th in that case, it's a lot of pipetting. What you're doing is you're taking that highly con concentrated and very high quality protein, and you're mixing it with a variety of different buffers, salts, and precipitants uh, in order to try to determine the condition in which the protein uh, crystallizes. And that's where the, the chemistry comes into play because uh, you're playing with along a phase diagram where you have to change the protein concentration, the precipitant concentration, buffer pH, salt concentration. Uh, and it's it's very luck-based because you, you just do it in a variety of 96 well screens and you just hope for the best. Sometimes you get a crystal and you uh, end up shooting it on the X-ray diffractometer and it ends up being a salt. Sometimes it just doesn't diffract well. So, uh, I, I can talk a little bit more about that process if you want. Yeah, I mean, definitely as a physicist, uh, X-ray diffraction kind of catches my eyes. Something that I understand at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely a very uh, it's a more unique field unto itself. Mm -hmm. uh, like you'll find that there's almost a, a in pretty much every university there's at least one. Uh, faculty member that does x-ray crystallography and that's like pretty much all they do so it, it's well it, it's a very um it's a technique that a lot of people uh don't do but when they do it they're really into it <laughs> hmm. they, they invest their entire time into it uh because it is very difficult to master you have to it's almost like an art form sometimes rather than a, a pure science hmm. uh, because you have to look at these under a microscope because you're only loading uh, with a pipe, micro pipetter, uh, microliter droplets under a tiny 96 well plate. So it takes a good bit of physical dexterity. And then the crystals that get produced are like sometimes they're 50 microns and you got to <laughs> loop them under the microscope and quickly free flash freeze them in liquid nitrogen. And then uh, luckily in at York University, we have an in-house diffractometer where uh, the x-rays are produced by a co rotating copper anode uh, with a yeah high highly charged anode. Uh, the filament produces the electrons and then the x-rays get shot out with a uh, collimating mirror. Uh, and we have a uh, charge couple detector hooked up with, as well as a liquid nitrogen uh, like flash freezing dispenser. So mm -hmm. as soon as we flash freeze in liquid nitrogen, we can bring it over to the diffractometer and we have uh, a, a jet of liquid nitrogen and liquid helium cooling it down so that uh, while the x-rays are shooting it, it limits the amount of damage done to the protein crystal. Hmm. Um, I was going to say, like, are there a lot of advances that have been made in x-ray diffraction since 
kind of, because I know like Watson and Crick kind of use the same method to discover DNA. Well, actually, it was Rosalind Franklin that did the diffraction. So, okay. uh, yeah, yeah they, they they took a look at her work and uh-huh. uh, yeah. sort of stole <laughs> her stole her thunder. But recently, uh, a yeah. lot of people have been uh, noticing her contributions to it. Yeah, actually, there are a lot of Nobel prizes won for uh, X-ray diffraction. Like over, I think over fifty. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's insane. So, uh, yeah, X-ray crystallography has a lot of. Uh, a lot of benefits mm-hmm. uh but it's a, it's a it's a very difficult technique sometimes to but have they through. have they like changed it's it changed over time or is it roughly still the same since that work or? the crystal itself the process of getting a crystal or yes yeah, still yeah, rel- yeah. relatively the same but uh-huh. obviously there's been advancements in the technology, technology. in terms of uh yeah. the the x-ray sources have changed uh, the detectors have gotten way, way better, especially recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you can collect a lot more data, a lot mm-hmm. higher resolution with yeah. um, with not as good crystals. And at the synchrotron, the uh, so the other way to collect it instead of in-house is you go to a synchrotron, which is basically a electron accelerator. And... <laughs> uh, so at the synchrotron, they just pretty much wobble an electron so that it produces a bunch of different uh, wavelengths of, well, light, pretty much, photon source. Mm-hmm. So you get uh, you can get x-rays tuned to various wavelengths if you, and amplitudes so that you can uh, modify your experiment however you wish because you do have to solve what's called the phase problem in crystallography, which I won't get into because it's very complex. That's where all the, the physics goes into it. <laughs> Uh, but basically, when you shoot a crystal with an X-ray, you get one of two things: either the angle or what's called the the structure factor. You don't, you can't get both, so mm-hmm. you have to solve for one normally, and then one you have to do either a form of an anomalous scattering where you have to solve for a highly electron dense particle. So you can do that in a number of ways: soaking the protein with a heavy atom. You can express the protein with instead of methionine, selenomethionine, or if the structure has been solved, a similar structure has been solved before, you can use molecular replacement, which then you sort of map what's already been solved on top of your protein. And it's sort of, it, it it's a lot of complicated mathematics involved, but it, it figures out your electron density map based on the previous one. Hmm. So um, that's where... Uh, you asked about the day-to-day life. That's where we get to spend some time on the computer and uh, work with some software. Mm-hmm. So I was going to say, do you work with maybe like, um, you know, people who research pharmacy or people that do kind of drug discovery? Like how, how is your research maybe applied um, to, you know, mm-hmm. drug development? Well, uh, when we get to the solid structure point, mm-hmm. uh, then people can use that for uh, in silico drug discovery where you can model in different small molecule drugs into the protein structure. If they know the dynamics or the active side of the protein, if it's an enzyme, for example, uh, they can model in a structure that would disturb the protein's function and then test it uh, in vitro and see, see if that disrupts the intended function of that protein. Mm -hmm. So that's where, uh, that drug discovery method would come in. 
mm-hmm. but uh, they're also crystalline uh, forms of drugs. So you can make microcrystalline insulin, for example, which works a lot better than uh, it's a long lasting insulin. It works way better than just insulin on its own for diabetes patients. So you just need one injection per day rather than multiple. Mm-hmm. So it's a long lasting, slow uh, dissolving injection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was actually, um, well, I can't say much about it because it was an yeah. ND, I was no, under an NDA, but uh, I was working with Apotex for a little while mm-hmm. um, on a project relating to crystallography. And so, I mean, I guess your research is, I wanted to say like it's ultimately about um, understanding the structure of this protein and understanding how it kind of reproduces. Is that correct? Like, and then once this structure is known well, then it becomes a lot easier to maybe reproduce or something. Uh, well, yes, actually, um, this protein and specifically the well, the entire system we were studying hasn't had uh, very many structures solved within it. Yeah, okay. and uh, no, not very many people are studying it structurally. Mm-hmm. We're like the one of few labs in the entire world, mm-hmm. and. <laughs> The other thing is that the protein I'm looking at, the only person who's really worked on it other than me is my supervisor way back in 2007. So Dr. Odette was the one that initially solved its function back in 2007, but nobody knows exactly how it works. Uh, it, it, performs, it performs a step in conjugation called entry exclusion, where uh, if two bacteria have the same plasmid, this protein that I'm studying, Trigy, somehow interacts with another protein on the other cell's inner membrane. So this protein, Trogy, is bound in the inner membrane of its own cell and somehow extends over multiple membranes to interact with another protein, Tri-S, to make sure that the other other bacteria does not have the same plasmid. So if it does, that Tri-S in the uh, other cell is is present so trigy would interact with tri s and prevent from the cells uh performing cr- conjugation to prevent the formation of what's called the mating pore and so like it uh, does that through signaling like are, are you actually or you could say that it might just like extend through like through its own membrane into the membrane of the other cell to interact with that other protein or well yeah we're thinking that it's sort of elongated the, the protein stays well formed while it's in its own cell and then elongates extends into the neighboring cell but we can't prove that until we solve the structure of it i see wow okay that's uh those proteins they can do like they can do crazy things kind of thing that's yeah uh, yeah. and it's just it's all the same 20 amino acids just coded differently yeah it's yeah it's amazing how uh even bacteria when dealt with one sequence can fold it differently than eukaryotic cells mm-hmm. so uh it depends on their machinery as well mm-hmm. and when we talk about like you know discovering all the protein well not only are there so many of them but like now you can kind of see why it's so hard because they can do you know like what you're saying like who would have thought that this protein can kind of extend out of its own membrane and enter into the membrane of another cell or something it's the reason yeah, why they're well, so complex we're we're not one hundred percent sure how yeah. it happens. It could be while the mating uh, the um, what's called the uh, mating junction is forming, mm-hmm. uh, and the membranes are fusing. They come into closer contact, and then maybe it doesn't have to extend as far as we assume. Mm-hmm. So it, it could be a number of things occurring. 
But what we do know is that it's a very specific process because when the plasmids are very highly similar, uh, they, they can still perform conjugation. But as soon as they're the exact same plasmid, they can no longer uh, perform conjugation thanks to this system of tra-G and tra-S. Hmm. So it's a very... Um, it's a, it's a unique mechanism that hasn't really been studied much. Mm -hmm. All right, Nick, how about, can you talk maybe about like what you'd like to study in the future? Um, like, would you kind of stay, I guess you, you would kind of stay in the, you know, discovering protein structure kind of area, or is there something you want to branch off into? Uh, th yeah, that's a good question because I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to be doing in the future. <laughs> uh, I'm working with a number of techniques, more than just X-ray crystallography. I'm doing small angle X-ray scattering, which is another method of determining protein structure. I'm doing um, some hydrogen deuterium exchange mass spectrometry, thanks to the Wilson Lab, uh, which is a big lab at York University for that technique. Um, I'm also uh, looking into uh, a novel, well, it's not novel, but it's a re-emerging technique that has been uh, garnering a lot of attention in the structural world, cryo-electron microscopy. Uh, and that's been very useful, actually, against the fight of COVID-19. Uh, they've determined a lot of very important structures of that with uh, COVID-19, oh, well, as well as crystallography. The first structures of the spike glycoprotein from COVID-19 were solved by uh, X-ray crystallography. Uh, so, oh, yeah. the, and those were instrumental in the, in the initial characterization of the, the virus. It was way back in December when those were found. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. So when crystallography works, it, it can work fast. Mm -hmm. That's it's cause they, they already saw the structures of other coronavirus spike mm -hmm. glycoproteins, like the SARS-CoV-1, uh, structure hmm. was already solved. So they were able to do that for the COVID-2 really quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what about, like, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the difference between continuing academia or, like, going to industry? Because I know you're someone who's mm -hmm. done kind of both. Yeah, uh, that's, again, why I'm, I'm not really sure where I'm going to be going into, because I've, I've stepped a little bit into industry. And from what I've seen recently, it's not always the most stable position. Hmm. Neither is academia at times, just because you, it's very competitive. But um, so yeah, sometimes you're on a project and you can just lose your lose your project pretty quickly. Um, it, yeah, it all depends on what I end up doing. I am getting a lot of um, experience doing teaching here at York University. Mm -hmm. I won the teaching award last year in the Faculty of Science, so um, I, I am starting to gear more towards academia, potentially teaching stream. But I do definitely enjoy research a lot. Um, and the problem with industry is they don't always let you uh, have as much freedom yeah. as academia. Yeah. Uh, but the thing about academia is that if you go into a postdoc, they don't pay all that well. Yeah. And uh, you'll, you'll be spend, spending a lot of time there, uh, not making as much money as those that... Uh, Aren't, might not be as experienced as you, but are in made it into industry right out of undergrad. Yeah. For example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation, Nick. I think um, we're gonna stop it here. But can you please kind of like plug kind of your email or anything in case anyone has any questions or? Yeah, sure. Um, 
my email is nickb13 at my.yorku.ca. I'd be happy to answer any questions regarding uh, protein structural biology, bacterial conjugation, antibiotic resistance, or even if you just want to talk about drums, because I also play uh, drums in a number of bands. Mm -hmm. And yeah, well, recently uh, we've been able to play in various places again, thanks to reopenings of uh, quarantines being lifted around the GTA. So uh, we're really looking forward to getting back out there. And we're actually going to be releasing a, uh, an album sometime soon. Really? Wow. So we'll keep you posted on that. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Eli Command podcast. Um, have a nice day.